Just Our Real Estate, episode number 312. Yeah, that could have been my first and last flip if I hadn't sold that first one. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you for joining me here on Just Our Real Estate. My name is Mike Simmons. I am your host. And today, I have a really cool interview that I want to play for you. It's actually a replay, but it's a valuable interview. It's an interview with one of my private investors. And one of the biggest and most common questions that I get from people who are just starting out, and even people who've been doing it for a little while, is how do I raise money? How do I approach a private investor? What do I do to get my deals funded? Well, listen, this interview is with a guy who has personally loaned me money on many deals. And it's a really interesting interview because you kind of get into the side of a head or or inside of a head of a, of a private investor. And that's exactly what a lot of us are trying to do, right? Is figure out what are these guys looking for? What do they want? Well, the answers are here in this interview, so stay tuned. But before we get started, I want to give a shout out and some love to our new sponsor, LandlordStation.com. LandlordStation.com is a one-stop shop for small landlords. They offer tenant screening, and you know if you listen to the show for any length of time, I have screwed up royally when it comes to screening tenants. You must screen your tenants. You must do a good job of that, or you're going to be really sorry. It's going to cost you thousands of dollars, and LandlordStation.com offers tenant screening for you guys, that alone makes it worthwhile. But when you get there, you're going to be very happy to find out that they also offer online rent payment software and services. They offer e-signatures, document storage, and rental applications. They literally have everything you need. Go check them out. I highly suggest that you go there and sign up and give them a shot. If you go to the website on the right-hand side, click on the Landlord Station banner and you will get 50% off of tenant screening. That's awesome. That alone is, is worth the time to go there and check it out. So go there, check it out. Go to the website, landlordstation.com. Tell them I sent you right in there. Uh, just start into the box, the promo code, just start, and you will get 50% off of tenant screening. I hope you go check them out. All right, thank you for joining me here on Just Start Real Estate. I appreciate you being here, and I'm excited to have my guest on today. He's a friend of mine who we've also done business together, and he has been a private investor of mine for a while now. So it's really exciting to talk to him, and it's going to be a different perspective than what you've heard from really any other guests that I've had to this point. Uh, my guest's uh, name is Larry. He's been an IT professional for over 35 years and currently works full-time at a large computer software development corporation. He's always had a love for anything to do with home construction as an, and is a serious do-it-yourselfer. He did his first rental property, residential property, flip in 2007 and has since either partnered or funded 20 more flips uh, from that time frame on. So thank you, Larry. I appreciate you being here. It's it's uh, good to get you on the show finally as somebody that I've really targeted and, and wanted to have on and uh, now it's happening. So thank you. Hi, Mike. Thanks. So just so the audience knows in full uh, disclosure here, you have uh, um, acted as a private investor for me in the past, and I know you're actively uh, a private investor for others in the area too, and you've been doing this, like you said, for quite a while, since 2007. Um, and and I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm right about this, but is, is most of the real estate you're doing now in the form of private funding, or are you flipping houses yourself actively right now? No, currently it's all private funding. And, uh, okay. Mainly because, not because I wouldn't like to, but I just don't have time to do any more than that. Yeah, them. I know you have an insane like work schedule. Your career keeps you extremely busy. We've you know we've talked about that privately in the past, so I'm well aware of that. Why don't we? 
Speaking of your work history, why don't we go back a little bit and talk about your background, your career path, and, and kind of how you got involved in real estate and how you got to this point. Well, as far as real estate goes, um, my dad was a residential builder, and he built over 250 homes in southeastern Michigan. So I, I always I grew up around construction you know, from a little kid, so I always liked it, and I always had, always had an interest in it. And I probably would have followed in his footsteps. I, I would have liked to if he hadn't retired when he was 43 and I was still about 10. So I didn't get a chance to take over the family business, but I've always had an interest in it. If he retired at 43, then that, that makes me think he was very successful. Uh, he was. Yeah, okay. He was quite successful. Nice, yes. good. And um, so I've always had an interest in it. I... Um, Along the way, I, I got my own residential builder's license actually 23 years ago and built the house that we live in. And I, I had hoped to get back to building at some point. I did one house on speculation with my dad. And, you know, we built it, sold it, made a lot of money. I, at the time, you know, I thought I could do that while I was doing my IT career, but it, it's just impossible to do both at the same time and I never really got back to the the building part of it. Okay. Well, so then how did you get to the point? So I know how you started that makes sense. How did you how did you get to your first residential flip? How did that come about? So I did the first flip I did was I did that completely on my own. I I found the house, I bought it. I you know, did the whole rehab. A lot of it, you know, a lot of the work I did myself, which, you know, isn't the best idea because I really didn't have time to do it, right. but I didn't have the contractors at the time. So I, you know, I found contractors where I could, but where I couldn't, I often, you know, filled in and did some of the work. So that, that first flip nearly killed me because, <laughs> you know, I was, yeah. I was there working at, you know, 11 at night. And I remember, I, I remember one night I was in the attic doing some wiring at 11 at night thinking, you know, what am I doing here? This is crazy. I don't have time for this. So that was my first flip. Right. Um, from there, I, I I knew I couldn't do that again. So then I partnered with somebody and I did five homes as an active partner where he found the homes. Um, I still, then I, I did the financing. I actually bought and held them in my LLC, but he managed the entire rehab uh, managed the sale of the property, and I still did some some things. You know, it was hard for me to to be completely hands off because that's just the kind of guy I am. <laughs> right. So I mean, I would do I did some finishing touches and so forth, um, but it was still time consuming for me because I did the um, you know I did the closings. Um, I still had in some cases I had to go pull the permits. And so forth. So that was a lot better than doing the whole thing on my own. But it it was still took quite a bit of my time. Sure, more, more than I I wanted. So um, from there, then I I just became a private investor, and then then I was only financing, no active involvement, and really that's worked out the best for me because um, I, I just don't have the time to do any more than that. So really on it. On a on a property today, I probably spend you know a couple hours on the on the 
front end, getting paperwork together and so forth, evaluating right. the deal. And then on the back end, it's not much at all. So, you know, maybe two to four hours of my time goes into a house now. Okay. Real quickly, just generically speaking or general terms, you, you said you get you spend some time getting the paperwork together. What type of paperwork, what type of documentation do you normally use on a flip? And is it the same with every investor? Uh, it is the same. I mean, I've gotten to the point where I, you know, it, it becomes somewhat routine. But I use my I use my own documents on everything. So I use my own promissory note that I I had created, uh, my own private mortgage. So those are the those are the two key documents. You know, the, the note and the mortgage, and then the mortgage gets gets um, recorded. Right. Now, is so, there a, gen, a joint venture agreement that you sign with with different investors, or you don't worry about that? No, I don't do that. Okay. It's, Okay. Yeah. And I know with, in the past, other investors and things, private investors, I've used a joint venture agreement just basically to spell out the agreement, what's what and where the, how the things are going to be divided in terms of net profits and things like that. So, okay, that's cool. That's interesting. Yeah. You use a promissory well, note and a private mortgage. Yeah. Well, those terms are actually spelled out in the promissory note. Okay. Okay. So it's, it's not just an IOU. It does yeah. spell out, you know, exactly what the, uh, the investor that I'm loaning the money to, what they're responsible for, and what what the terms are, and what the agreement is. Okay. Okay. Um, now, is there a time frame usually attached to those those deals, or or no? I don't have anything written in there as far as time frame. Okay. Okay. Although it probably would be a good idea. I haven't I haven't had a problem with it yet, but only because I have a good working relationship with the people that I deal with. Sure. So if it if something seems to be taking a long time, we generally you know sit down and talk about it, right. see what what's the, what the holdup is, and and kind of come into agreement on you know what the plan is. Okay, and then you decided basically the point that you decided to come become a just a private investor in terms of like being more hands off and and, and passive investing was basically it was it was not that you didn't enjoy the rehab part of it or not that you didn't know how to do that part of it it was just time really it was it was your time was you didn't have time for that type of involvement in the projects is that fair yeah uh, exactly okay okay um you know when i did like i said the, the first one almost killed me because i was doing everything myself <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. i work you're trying to run out at lunchtime you're trying to meet contractors before work after work of course you know that when you set an appointment with a contractor, it's it's not like like I have a meeting schedule at work where the people show up on time. You know, half the time exactly. they show up later, they don't show up, or yep, you know, whatever. So it it was always challenging to to do that. Yeah, contractors for whatever reason, it, you know, it's tough to find sometimes a contractor that treats his business like a business. You're exactly right. There. A lot of missed appointments, a lot of late, you know, a lot of uh, commitments not kept. So, you know, that's that's the game, I guess. That's how why we struggle sometimes to find good contractors and keep good contractors. Because even when you find a good contractor who will show up on time, it seems like after time that that business ethic or that that sense of commitment or timing erodes, and and then you have to move on and find somebody else. So, pretty pretty normal stuff, and it's hard to do if you have a nine to five job to to uh, to count on someone to be there who's you know their top priority is not to be somewhere on time. I guess so. Right, and I and I had more of a eight to eight job, you know. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to shortchange your hours. <laughs> because I have a I have a long drive, sometimes up to an hour each way, 
and and I often work long hours. So yeah. sometimes it was hard for me to you know get out of work on time to to go meet with somebody, and that's why I was there sometimes, you know, ten, eleven at night working on something because I might not have gotten out of my day job until seven, eight at night. Yep. Yep. But so what, you know, that, and that's what really made me go to just funding, you know, investors. One of the things that kind of stuck in my mind, actually, my dad told me this a long time ago, and it just stuck with me because he he started out as a carpenter and he progressed from being a carpenter to a, a builder. Um, and they actually bought and developed their own properties. So they, they did everything. And someone once told him, you'll not make any big money till you lay your tools down. Meaning, as a carpenter, he was never going to get rich. He had to be the builder, right? Right, right. So that always kind of stuck with me, although it took me a long time to get that through my head because I like doing things with my hands. It's hard for me not, you know, not to want to go in there and swing a hammer and do things. So. Yeah. That's, you know what, that's a really good point too, Larry. And, I, and, you know, I really for any, anybody in this business, really, if you're trying to do it yourself, you're, you're right, you're, you're very limited at how much money you can make. And frankly, and I know you know this, if you're, if you're at a job site swinging a hammer, you know, you're basically making whatever that job is worth. And the things that really are going to make your business take off, finding money, finding deals, if you're not spending time on that, you know, you're you're just super limited. And like you said, you just don't make any real money until you put those tools down. That's a good point. It's a great point, actually. Well, it actually can cost you money because if the job takes longer, if the rehab takes longer because you're in there doing it yourself, in the end, you can actually, you know, it'll cost you money. Sure. Yep. Because you know, time is money. The faster you can turn mm -hmm. that, money, the more you make. So, yep. It only makes sense if you can do it as fast as someone else can, and it doesn't prevent you from doing the the things you should be doing to grow your business. Absolutely. I, you know, there's a saying that we we both have heard a few times from from a, a common friend: uh, "Money loves speed." Right. Yep. So. Right. It's true. It's true. The longer you take, the the more it's going to cost you. You're not doing the next job, which means you're late to start the next one. Holding costs and all that stuff. It's all plays into it. It's and it's great point. And it's something that I I definitely preach on here, and I try to tell some of the students that I work with is when they say, "Oh, you know, I can lay floors. I'm really good at that," or "I'm a, you know I'm a great painter." That's awesome. Don't do it on your own houses. If you want to do it in your home, that's fine. But but when you're talking about uh, an investment, you know, it's about speed, getting in, getting out, being efficient with your time and your money. And sometimes the most efficient use of your money is spending it on paying someone else to do things, even if you can do them, because your time is better spent doing other things in this business. If you want to do more than one flip a year or two flips a year, right? right. I mean, if you want to do one flip a year, I guess go for it. But still, like you said, the holding costs and just holding on to that property is costing you money. So if it takes too long, even if you're only do one property it's still a losing proposition well not only does the holding cost get you but the market can change so that when yeah, i did that first point. house in 2007 that's when things were just starting to crash yeah so when i bought the house everything was fine six months later i saw the values on that street dropping by like ten twenty thousand dollars and i was i was very lucky i i sold it when i did because a year later, I would have gotten 
like a fraction of what I sold it for. So yeah. and that, it's that's, a, that's a case where holding it too long and the market changes can really cost you money. That's an excellent point. We've, we all learned that in that time frame. And the, you know, the thing that people should understand when they hear that, you know, Larry says they, they, he bought a house and he saw the prices dropping 10, 20%. We're in the Midwest where I don't know what the house costs Larry, but I guarantee it wasn't a $500,000 house like you might find in Southern California, where maybe the, the profit was going to be eighty dollars to $100,000. I mean, what was, the, what was the expected profit on that first house before the prices dropped? What did you think you were going to make on it? Well, the expected resale price was $125,000. Okay. I ended up selling it for one nineteen. dollars What did you buy it for? And what did you put, I mean, what was, it, what was the profit supposed to be? Um, I bought it for seventy, and I put twenty into it, so I made about fifteen thousand. Okay, okay. But so that were... same house, I, I looked a few years later when things had bottomed out, and it was it was had well, it had gone through a foreclosure after I sold it to the new owners, and then it was resold for about thirty thousand. Wow! Wow! <laughs> so, that, the huge. whole bottom fell out in that area. Right. So in in, the, in our market, especially back then, if you're losing fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a profit because of declining, uh, you know, house values, that represents a good chunk of your profit, if not all of it, depending on how you bought the house. So, yeah, right. that's 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 huge. And that that holding onto it in the market changing cannot be underestimated. We've all lived through that point. So. Shame on us if we don't know that. But um, that's a great point. It's not just holding costs. Your house could literally drop in value. Yeah, that could have been my first and last flip if I hadn't sold that first one. <laughs> I, I could still be holding it as a rental. Right yeah, now. exactly, exactly. So <clears throat> as far as being a private investor, this is where I really want to kind of get into your head a little bit. And I want people to understand how someone who does loan their own money out to other individuals, how they, how they evaluate things and how they think. How do you decide? First of all, forget about the deal for a minute because I suspect... And I, I know you well enough that if someone came to you and said, I bought a house in West Bloomfield, which in our in our neck of the woods is a very, very nice area, very nice. I bought a house in West Bloomfield for $50,000. I can flip it for $200,000, and it's only going to cost me, say, $50,000 to fix it up, right? Great deal. But you never met this person. You don't know who they are. Nobody you know knows them. They approach you out of the blue and ask to, if you want to partner with them. What are you going to say? Well, that might fall into if it sounds too good to be true. It, it it's probably not a right. good deal. Um, I've only, I mean, so far I've only done deals with people I actually know. Right. And mostly I've met through real estate investment clubs where I've I I go on a monthly basis and you get to know people. Yep. And you get to know what they're doing and what they're like and kind of what their values are and the track record and whether or not you know they're profitable if they get sure. stuck with any homes or not. So, I mean, that's how I, I've i chosen who to deal with is actually because I've gotten to know them. Yeah. Um, if it were someone I had never met before, I'd still want, I'd want to see um, them to show me a portfolio of what they've done. So, you know, list all the homes they've done, pictures, all the numbers and honest numbers, you know, not made up numbers. Yeah, I exactly. want to know exactly what they spent on it, how long they held it, what they sold it for, and just kind of get an idea of, you know, what their track record's been. Sure. Okay. So the, to this point, you've only worked with people that you knew personally, right? So, I, I mean, have, has anyone ever approached you to, to invest with them or to be a private investor and you said no thank you? Uh, yeah. And actually, 
Well, actually, I did have someone approach me that I really didn't know. I, I had spoke at a real estate investment meeting, and afterwards someone came up and approached me, and and they they had done some flips on their own, uh, using their own money, and but they were looking to expand. Right. And um, they did just what I said. They, they gave me a, a pro- portfolio that showed everything they'd done and the timelines and what their costs were, and I was actually impressed with with what what he had done, and I I actually considered uh, you know loaning him some money, but I just never I I never had the need to because the people I was working with kept my money um, you know turning all the time, kept it at work. So if there were a time where I didn't have someone to invest with, I might have considered it, but that generally hasn't happened. Okay. And as far as the deals go, so I know I, I kind of have a better idea of how you choose the, the people that you're going to work with and how you chose them to this point. But now that you've you, now that we're into your circle of people that you are comfortable working with, what is the what is your criteria? What do you look for in a deal? What makes a deal good or bad? If it, given the person that you're working with is is acceptable and you're you're comfortable with them and you you've dealt with them, they come to you with a deal. What what represents is it a is it a rate of return? Is it you know how are you determining whether or not it's a good investment for you at that time? Well, first of all, I because I've I've done this on my own. You know, I, I did one house on my own and and five is as a partner and I'm pretty good at figuring out you know what um, what things cost as far as improvements I won't fund any deal that I wouldn't personally do myself so when I when I look at something I kinda look at it as if I was going to do it okay so what's it cost what's the estimated rehab cost what do we think the resale is gonna be and just see what the spread is I mean the spread has to be big enough where there's there's room for a little margin of error, you know? Sure. Because as you know, unexpected things come up. So even if you expect the spread is going to be, say, forty or 50000 um, you got to allow for the unexpected. Something's always going to come up. And then on the back end, you know, you got to have your, your sale commission. You might have some um, concessions that you give to the buyers to, to move them along. So, you know, you need room for all that. So basically, that's how I, I do it. I, I just look at as if I was going to do the deal and see if it makes sense. And I look at, this, at the house the same way, too. I'm not going to typically, although I've made exceptions, typically I, I want a house, you know, like three bedrooms, basement, garage, nice street, just a nice family home. Right. I typically don't like homes without basements, although I've done two. Because in Michigan, basements are really common, and if sure. you don't have one, it's it's kind of a more of an exception, I'd say. Yep. Uh, I don't like like a two bedroom home. I typically wouldn't lend on that. You know, busy street, corner lot, junky house, homes around it. You know, just look at the whole thing, the neighborhood, the location, and I'd have to say, in almost every house I've done. It's a home that that I could see, you know, I, I would live in. I mean, if if I didn't live where I, I live today, you know, it's a house that I, I could see myself living in. If, right. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, yeah, not, yeah. not a dumpy house. I mean, it's just a nice street, you know, like where kids are playing and 
um, you could you could see a young family family moving into it, you know. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, you're basically evaluating like you if you were an investor. And I, I know for me, uh, Nanette and I, one of our general rules of thumb, it's not a hard and fast rule, I guess, but it's sort of a general guideline is if we don't feel comfortable going there at night or if I don't feel comfortable uh, with Nanette going there at night to check on something to make sure something was done after it was maybe dark out. Then it's probably not a house I should invest in. I, I don't want to. I don't right. want to be involved in selling or buying a house to any. You know, selling a house to anybody in an area that I personally or, or I don't want my wife to be. So, yeah, I, I totally know what you're saying, and that's that's good. So your your investment criteria really isn't so much about I have to get 15% return. There has to be at least a $25,000 spread. It's not that hard and fast. It's more deal by deal. Let me look at it. Does it make sense? And then I would assume it's also a matter of looking at, you know, where your, your funds are, are being used at the time and does it make sense versus another opportunity that you have? I mean, is that basically right? Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's got to have a, a decent spread on it so they know there's going to be profit and sure. it's got to be home that I know that, or I'm pretty confident will sell. So again, it has to meet those basic criteria. Um, price range, I, when I first started out, I was doing the lower end prices, you know, like meaning like the the least expensive home I ever bought was eighteen thousand. Wow, what city was that in? It's not really interesting for anybody outside of Michigan, but just curiosity, what city was um, it? That was in Redford, and okay, that was okay. when the market was really bad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think we sold it for like fifty nine thousand when we were done. Okay. And it, and it was, you know, it was a decent house, yeah. nice street, you know, brick lined you know brick yeah. homes and so forth <clears throat> and then and then the next um you know like i did like five of them say where the resale was anywhere from 60 to say a hundred thousand okay um and those were fine but what i found was that at that lower market range although it was easier to fund you know what i mean it was not hard to come up with the money the problem was often the buyers in the, in that market weren't qualified. Yeah, yeah. Because half the people who look at the house would ask, "Are you willing to rent it out?" They really couldn't afford it. They couldn't buy it. So finding qualified buyers was kind of hard in that price range. So from there, um, I, I I wanted to kind of move you know move up a little bit. And not only that with the buyers, but the other thing was there was a lot of competition. Because it was, it's not that hard, and and at that time it wasn't that hard to come up with say fifty thousand dollars to fund one of those lower cost rehabs. Right. In fact, at the time, um, um, it was so easy to borrow money. I mean, you you remember when you could get a twenty a twenty thousand dollar line of credit just by signing your name. Absolutely, right? yeah. So. It, there was a lot of competition for those lower cost homes because people could buy them. They could almost, they could fund the rehab on credit cards. Yep. So there was a lot of competition. <clears throat> the buyers weren't qualified. So uh, after that, I, I wanted to kind of move up into a higher priced home. So so today I like to have typically a hundred, a hundred twenty, twenty five thousand invested with a resale of. Say uh, you know 140 to 175, 180, something like that. The that makes the house pretty affordable for buyers, even first-time buyers. Yep. Um, 
I've gone as high as 168000 but then I start, um, you know, it's a lot of money tied up. The other thing is if I'm in that 100000 125000 I'm able to do two at a time. Okay, yeah. So, so that makes a difference whether I can have one or two going at a time. And the other thing when you said about, you know, like do I need a certain return or not, I don't because what I look at is if I can do – Two at a time, what's more important to me at the end of the year, how much money did I make? I know some homes are going to be just an average return, and once in a while you hit a home run. So the only thing that matters to me is at the end of the year, my average return was, you know, good. Right, right. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, honestly, I think it's tough when you're investing in different types of homes, different, you know, different purchase and sale price and different, you know, like you said, the market goes up and down and there's home runs and there's base hits. It's really tough to say this is my rate of return because there'll be times when you're selling yourself short. You probably could have done better and you should be aiming higher. And maybe there's times when, you know, just it's not realistic. You know what I mean? So yeah, that makes sense. I, I like that approach. It, it, it seems logical to me. Well, and it depends on how long you might wait for another deal to come along. So if exactly. I turn something down because I, I think I'm you know, I'm going to make 7000 versus fifteen. The next deal might not be any better, or the next deal may be months away. I'd rather keep the money at work. Yep. So if, it's, if I think it's going to sell and I'm going to make, you know, a decent return, I'll do it. Um, it's certainly more than we can make in the bank today. So <laughs> You got that right, for sure. So, all right, we talked about what terms that you look for. How do you structure your deals generally speaking or, or or do you do it differently for every single deal I, I think I think you'd probably do it similarly for each deal at this point but what what kind of structure do you use in terms of like how is the how are the profits divided how do you determine that well when we when I started out as you know when, when I was partnering it was always a 50 50 split okay I put up the money my partner did most of the work and we split the profit down the middle. That was, that was pretty easy. When I, I started just being a private investor, actually in the beginning, it, we kind of did the same thing because, um, I mean, that, and there was more than enough money, you know, for everyone at that point. And sometimes the person I was loaning the money to, you know, they didn't have another option, so splitting it down the middle was still pretty agreeable to everybody. Sure. Um, since then, so I do loans two ways. One, I have a um, a checkbook IRA that I use. So I rolled my my um, 401k into a self-directed IRA from a previous job. So first I use equity trust, and then later I rolled it into a checkbook IRA, which means my IRA owns an LLC, which I'm the manager of. Okay. So I can actually write a check, um, you know, from the IRA to to purchase an investment. Okay. So I use that, and then I also have my LLC that I use to flip the first home, and and I just have so I have personal funds in there that I that I do loans on as well. Originally, I was doing flips out of the IRA, but I became aware of a, it's kind of a, a little known 
tax issue that you, you could be subject to tax on your IRA on a flip. And it's called unrelated business income tax. And although I don't, I don't think it's common for people to get into a situation where they have to pay tax, but from what I read, it's possible because IRAs were set up by the um, IRAs were set up to allow individuals to invest in passive investments like stocks and bonds, and right. then they defer paying tax on the income. Well, when you use an IRA more for business reasons, like doing flips, it kind of gives you an unfair advantage over people that have to use their own money. And, and it's not passive anymore. So in those cases, it could be subject to tax. So I guess, I guess I would just urge everyone to do their own investigation on that. Yeah, uh, that's, that's the first time I've ever heard of that, actually. I didn't even know about that. Yeah, and it's it's like I say, it's it's not well known. It's called unrelated business income tax, UBIT. So anyway, once I learned of that, I started being more careful about using my IRA for flips. Now I only use it for straight loans, like like uh, for a uh, you know interest rate. Okay. So I might do a, a loan at you know fifteen percent. Or a loan for a flat fee, like I've done that in the past, where I loaned, say, $15,000 out because an investor I knew was a little short on a deal, and I just did it a flat fee of $1,500. Okay. So those kind of things are, are passive, and and that's kind of what I use my IRA for now, is that kind of loans. Okay. The ones where I'm doing profit splits or flips, I use you know cash in, in my other LLC to do those. Okay. That's interesting. That's good to know. UBIT. I'm actually going to put that in the show notes. Uh, I'm going to look for some information on that and link to it because I think that's interesting. Um, and just so everyone knows, just to, to remind you that the show notes for this episode can be found at juststartrealestate.com forward slash Larry. And I should say, it, it sounds kind of weird. We talked about it before the before the show a little bit. Um, I, I'm not. I'm purposely leaving Larry's last name out of this because um, the internet. It's pretty easy to find people, and and you know he's a private investor, and he's not here soliciting investors to call him to loan them money. As a matter of fact, I think that's the last thing he's trying to do right now. So we're just being a little bit careful. That's all with with privacy because we're talking about someone here who's who's loaning money out actively and isn't isn't soliciting for that. So you know. It's not an accident. Don't don't email me and say you didn't give me his last name. It's on purpose, so that's why that's why we're doing that. Um, Thanks, Mike. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> I won't put your uh, I won't put your phone number on here either. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> so let me. So, uh, well, go, so go back ahead. to the profit. You yep. know, it used to be yep. fifty fifty. Now now I have a little different agreement where um, because things started to get a little bit tighter for investors too. Like right now, it's 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 not as easy to find the great deals anymore, right? Sure, yeah. So the profits are a little tighter. So actually what I've been doing, um, I don't know, maybe the last five or eight flips, it was more of a, uh, it was a 40 to 50% split, kind of on a sliding scale. So the way I wrote this up was that um, it's based on the percent of net profit. And net profit is calculated based on dividing the net proceeds by the total loan. So, for example, if I loan $100,000 and after everything's said and done and we sell the house, there's $20,000 to split, yep. my share would be 40% because 20000 is 
20% of 100,000. So if right. it's 20% or more, net profit, my split is 40% of it. Okay. Going the other way, if the deal doesn't do so well, uh, say it's say we were going to split 10,000, which is only 10% net profit, my share would be 50%. So it kind of gives the the person I'm lending money at a little incentive to, you know, find good properties and keep their expenses in check. Sure. To keep the net profit, you know, at 20% or, or above, and then they get 60% and I get 40. So I, I thought it was a fair thing. And, and actually the investors that I work with think it's pretty fair too. Yeah, that makes sense. And when you say net profit, it's total proceeds minus your loans, but also minus all the closing costs and yeah. commissions and everything. After so, all expenses, yeah. this, this is what the money that's going to be split in the very end. Right, right. And I just want to make that clear because there's a lot of new investors listening, um, uh, real estate investors, and I want to make sure they understand what net proceeds all in, involve everything. I mean, every, everything. Taxes, um, title insurance, realtor commissions, loans, everything, the whole kit and caboodle. So at the end of the day, what is truly left over after everything is paid is the net profit. So that makes sense. Right. That's, that's, no, that's, that makes total sense. So like I said, you've been doing this for a long time, Larry. We've rerun we a lot of the same circles and know a lot of the same people. But what do you see or do you see right now people making mistakes like newer investors or just investors in general out there where you just kind of shake your head or you know you see them doing things that that you know is probably not the smartest thing is there anything like that any any things you're seeing out there that people are doing wrong well i probably made a few mistakes in the beginning too <laughs> yeah we both we both um, trust me but yeah you know i guess the thing that i i saw that you know that people should be careful of is so, like I said, I, I've always loaned money to people I've known, right? Yeah. I've gotten to know them on some level. Well, I've, I've seen cases where people loan money with no paperwork or little paperwork or just a promissory note, and they didn't file a private mortgage. Right. So, you know, the right way to do it is don't assume anything, put everything in writing, understand all the terms of the documents you're signing, create a private mortgage, file it the day of the closing. And if you don't, if the title company can't do it or the person you're working with, if you don't have a good enough relationship to know they're going to do it, I'd file it myself. Sure. I'd have them sign the mortgage, get it notarized, and I'd go down to the uh, county and, and file it myself because if that pri private mortgage does not get recorded, you don't have a lot of recourse. Yep. I mean... It's now an unsecured loan, basically. Uh, I mean, it's nice having a promissory note, but I'd rather have a, a lien on the property <laughs> if I'm going to get my money back. Exactly. So, I guess that's the one thing that I saw is people taking it a little too casual, you know, and and not treating it as a business, even though they might know somebody fairly well. Yeah, and I want to make the point too because I think this is interesting. I've talked about. Um, hard money on here and I've talked to people who work in institutional lending and things like that and a lot of times there's terms thrown around like loan to value and after repair value and what I wanted to make clear and correct me if I'm wrong here Larry I think I'm right though I'm sure I'm right that when you're working with private investors and you're loaning them money you're loaning them not only the proceeds to purchase the home but you're loaning the the, the rehab money as well too right that's correct. Okay, so it's yeah. it's it's like 
Yeah, it's like 100% funded the way you're doing it, which, you know, somebody might listen to this and go 40 to 50% of the profits. Wow, that's a lot. Well, go and try to find someone in the in the institutional lending side or the hard money side that will loan you 100% of purchase price and 100% of, of rehab uh, cost. And then you'll understand exactly why someone would be willing to give up 40 to 50% of the of the proceeds because that's, that's exactly why. It's a great deal. It is a win-win situation because from your perspective, like you said, you're only spending a few hours on each deal and then the investor is spending um, or should be spending quite a few hours a week on the job, you know, managing contractors. And that's, that's how they're basically, you know, creating their value on their side, but loaning a hundred percent of the, of the value of the house and then hundred percent of the rehab, that that's a pretty good, pretty powerful, you know, pretty powerful way to fund it. And, and that's why we, people would give up that kind of, of profit at the end of the deal. But that's very cool. And like I said, I've talked to hard money lenders and I think, you know, I want people to be aware that, the power and the value of creating relationships and meeting people and, and entering into these private uh, funded deals because you know think about how much more you can do if you can if you have a deal that's fully funded with someone who who trusts you knows your knows your track record and and realizes that you can bring value to the to the to the table in in the terms of finding a house and selling it and, and making a profit uh, somebody who's fully funding that that's I mean that's just a great situation for everybody. Right. And well, and you have to look at the reverse of that. So yeah, they're, they're giving up 50% or 40% of their profit. But on the other hand, it's money that they may never have made, right? If they yeah. don't get the loan, sure. they're not going to make anything. And if they're growing their business and doing it right and not doing the work themselves like we talked about and being able to have three, four, five houses going at a time, what do they care if they're giving up 40%? If they yeah. got four or five of them going, this is money that they wouldn't have if they didn't have the private investor, you know, funding their deals. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. It's that's that's the, the probably the most powerful form of leveraging other people's money that you can make. And it's like I said, it's not it's not bad on either side of the table. No one's getting, you know, no one's getting the short end of the stick. Everyone sort of comes out as a winner. You don't have to do the work. They're not coming up with the money. And as long as everybody keeps their promises and and you know, does what they're supposed to do, it's going to be a great way to go. And that's why you're funding the same people over and over again, because they're doing that for you. Yep. Yep. Good. Well, all right. Let's talk a little bit about here. We're kind of toward the end. Let's talk about your long-term goals. What are you planning on doing in real estate going forward in the coming months and years? What are your, what are your long-term goals? Well, my short term is just to continue what I'm doing today. Okay. Uh, long-term, I still love being around construction. And when I retire from my IT job, I'd like to do more with construction. So whether that's doing, you know, going back to doing the full rehabs myself, you know, and funding my own rehabs, or even uh, building a house on speculation like I did before, I, I really enjoyed that. I liked, I liked the whole building process. So I, I could see myself getting back into that in the future. Okay, very good, very good. Well, listen, like I said in the beginning, I really appreciate you doing this. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's it's Sunday. We're, do, we're doing this on a Sunday, and Larry was kind enough to talk to me on a Sunday. So I appreciate it very much. Super educational. I, like I said at the beginning, I've never talked on the podcast to a, a private investor and, and kind of gotten their perspective of this whole real estate investing world that, that I talk about every day. So I appreciate you being on. I appreciate 
uh, your candor and your you know complete honesty on how you view this and how you run your business. I think it's going to be helpful for people going forward, just approaching private investors in their own markets and kind of understanding, you know, how how you think as a private investor. It's just super valuable stuff, and and I I'm really happy that you decided to do this. To do this, so thanks again. And um, if anything you want to say before we get off here, I know we're not leaving emails and, and phone numbers like we do a lot of times, but any any parting words of advice or anything you'd like to say. Well, if it's someone that's looking to be a private investor, I would just say if you have, you know, if you have the means to do it, and again, if you don't have the time to do, uh, you know, a flip on your own, this is a great way to get involved. And even if you don't have enough money to put up the entire project, you know, the purchase and the rehab, you can partner with somebody on it. I've been in, I've been in deals where I'm, I'm just a, one of the people putting up money. So, um, yeah. You know, just get started, and if you have to partner, that's still a good way to go. Exactly, I, I think that's great. Get the, just get out there and do it, right? I mean, that's the whole, that's that's the premise behind this podcast. Just start, you know, get out there and get involved and get started. Because, like you said, you didn't have in the beginning the money to fund the kind of deals and, and put out the money that you're putting out now. But it's a, it's a growth, and and you do these deals and profit and rolled into the next one, and you know it snowballs. So good advice. Yeah. I like it. Well, bottom line, if if I could get. 15% in the bank, I wouldn't be doing this at all. <laughs> but we know that that's not happening. Exactly. So, yeah, you know what? When that does happen, I'm probably going to shut this down because most people just throw their money in the bank. So, right. All right. Well, listen, I appreciate it, Larry. And uh, I, I'll definitely be talking to you soon because we know each other. So, uh, but thanks for doing this again. And uh, yeah, it was fun. All right. Thanks, Mike. All right. Thanks a lot. Okay. Until next time, if investing in real estate is your dream, there's only one way you can make it a reality just start. Thank you.